This season, we'll be further exploring each topic, hanging out with experts and enthusiasts of all kinds for more strange stories, social commentary, and the myths that make America tick. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Ellen Cushing caught my attention with her piece in The Atlantic called I Was a Teenage Conspiracy Theorist that tells the story of her own conspiracism during the post-9-11 years. And you know what? It was extremely similar to my own. Not only is Ellen a writer, she's also the special projects editor at The Atlantic and the editorial director of their ongoing series on conspiracism called Shadowland. Today, we share our experiences as teenage conspiracy theorists to try to explain what these stories were like back in our day and how they intersect with the stories we hear now that have profoundly altered our current political and social relationships. We'll also ask the biggest question of all, how do we combat this alternate reality? As the subtitle on Ellen's article reads... Want to know why wild conspiracism can be so irresistible? Ask a 14-year-old girl. Ellen, thank you so much for being here. It is so great to be here. I am thrilled about the opportunity to talk to another former teenage conspiracy theorist. Would you mind just let's start by what was your in route? Because we're going to kind of talk about how conspiracy theories have really changed form a lot. And they came out of thinking that that someone as a teenager would be really, really attracted to. Um, And so what was what was your in route into sort of the world of the Illuminati, essentially? (laughs) (laughs) Great place to start. My. In route was that I had a teacher in high school, freshman year, in a journalism teacher who just was really into conspiracy theories and taught my class about conspiracy theories, specifically about the Illuminati one day. I don't remember what the like pedagogical purpose of this lesson was, but he just kind of stood up in front of the class and was like, there's something you got to know kids and explain the Illuminati in great detail. We also watched the matrix in that class. This was definitely sort of part of his bent as a teacher. And um, I just fully believed it. I like heard it in school and like came home that day and was like, I believe in the Illuminati now. Like this is totally logical to me. So, so yeah, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't like a message board thing. It wasn't anything like that. It was just like one influential person telling me and I just believed it. Man, do you remember sort of that wave? Because what year were you born? 1988. Okay, I'm the exact same age as you. So our journey is is happening on an exact same timeline. But for me, a big moment with sort of this conspiracy theory, which at the time had a lot of New Age elements, the same way that weirdly this far right movement now has these sort of like mystical elements. Um, QAnon Shaman is a great example, of course. But did you watch this like the slate of documentaries that came out in the mid 2000s, like Zeitgeist? Do you remember Zeitgeist? I did not watch Zeitgeist. I 
um, slightly later in my conspiracy theory journey, got really into loose change. Oh, yeah. A, a milestone for all of us. Of really. course. Um, I did not see Zeitgeist. Please tell me about Zeitgeist. <laughs> um, Zeitgeist was pretty much, and this was my inroad. So I was raised almost in like a Gnostic Christian sort of situation where it was like um, definitely an odd alternative sort of spirituality. Um, and Zeitgeist was very much the um, that inroad of like the age of Aquarius and these like huge changes that were going to occur all over the world and bring us into sort of like the age of love. So it it was all like very it was like hippie stuff at the time, um, which was attracted to me as I wore Birkenstocks um, and fought the war. Um, and I think that that's a uh, very and a very important thing you brought up with loose change is at the time when you and I were in high school, it was, you know, uh, post 9-11, as you mentioned in your piece. And it was very much we were all seeped in this very strange, deceptive era of Bush. You know, we were watching what felt like a real and in some ways was conspiracy playing out with the war, right, with the Iraq war and with these weapons of mass destruction and with all, with all these confusing messages and this like fervent, intense, like frothing patriotism that was happening and something like loose change where, you know, it, it attributed this story to this massive villain and thus like the Illuminati. Right. And and loose change, in case people don't know, was the 9-11 truth the big one that, you know, Bush caused 9-11, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but at the time, it was not hard to believe. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to remember now because so much has happened. But post 9-11 was such a weird kind of sweaty, like feverish moment when like even really smart, really reasonable people felt paranoid for good reason, because something that we didn't think could happen had happened. And there was suddenly there was a war and the world had changed in a way that was so big and so confusing. And it was just in retrospect, I don't think any of this would have happened for me had it not been that particular moment in time between you know, the 18 months basically between 9-11 and the start of the war. It was such a complicated time because we're coming off of, like you said, we were coming off of this really devastating and terrifying moment that we were all trying to make sense of as kids. There were just su such loud voices, including Alex Jones, who we will talk about, who were basically saying the things that I wanted to hear, which is a terrible thing to say. But I grew up with a really political sort of father. And uh, so he would would have a gigantic no Iraq war sign on his car. And then I wouldn't be like allowed to go down there because it was such a, a scary time. But at the same time, even years later, I would be I used to hitchhike a lot. And that's where I, I learned a lot about conspiracy theories, as you could imagine that I would in different parts <laughs> of the country. Um, I even once got picked up by a guy. He, he showed me video that he thought would prove that not only was 9-11 orchestrated, but that there was no second plane and that it had been like animated into 
the scene. And when you look back on that, it's as as outrageous as some of the the false stories that we hear today, right? I mean, this was not a far-right person. This was not a militia person. But then these ideologies have kind of merged in weird ways that are really disturbing. And I think a good place to start with that is Alex Jones. He especially went after the elites, which then morphed into reptilians, which got more ridiculous. But like you said, it was this time where it wasn't hard to believe, and as it is now easy to believe that the elites are controlling the world and that they meet, they get together, they make deals, they do all these different things, which they do in a way, right? Right. And that's why it's such an attractive theory. But anyway, as I ramble on, what I really want to know is you grew up near a place called Bohemian Grove. Would you want to give us anything about that? Yes. Okay. So um, I grew up in Berkeley, which is like a, you know, hour, hour and a half drive south of Bohemian Grove, which is this um, giant piece of property in, in my opinion, like the most beautiful place in the country, um, the, the sort of Northern California coast. And it is, this is confirmed information, is a place where the Bohemian Club, which is a kind of a group of elites, it allegedly counts many former presidents, uh, CEOs, people like that, among its members, it's like Fight Club, people don't like admit to being in Bohemian Grove, but <laughs> allegedly, and there have been a few books about it, you know, people have tried to go undercover there. Including Alex Jones. Yes. And I, I lived I lived close enough to it and, and, you know, my whole family lives in Northern California and you just, you meet people who were like cater waiters there who are NDA'd up and like can't really talk about it, but if you get like two beers in them, they'll talk about it. And I've never been, I've been near it, but I've never been. And it's one of these things where if you grew up where I did, it's sort of on the periphery. And it is a place where a group of elites (laughs) allegedly get together to do elite person things, details unknown. And so that was another thing that sort of like, you kind of, you're looking to your left and looking to your right and you're sort of like, this doesn't sound that far-fetched to me, but what what is your relationship with the Bohemian Grove and the Bohemian Club? It's so funny that you say, get two beers in these folks and they start talking because I was traveling with a friend of mine and we stayed at a campground um, and this was in my early 20s. And as you talk about my my Illuminati stuff, I was not like... I was not gone, right? I, it was it was like part fun, but I was also like, but like, I really do believe this, but not, you know what I'm saying? You know. Oh, I know. But it toes that line, and I do think that that's where so many people start. Yeah, I was camping really close to Bohemian Grove unknowingly, but I knew what Bohemian Grove was. Um, and it's worth saying that a big part of why Bohemian Grove uh, in addition to being a meeting place of the elites, was so um, mythical was that they held the cremation of care, which was a very strange, ri- like what appears to be a ritual sacrifice if you want to go that way. But it is absolutely not a ritual, ritual sacrifice. Um, but it is a very strange thing where people wear robes and they do a whole little weird play with chanting and everything. And it's just something that's like a weird fratty secret society. Society, skull crossbones shit you know right? right 
Yeah. And for those who are like deeply confused by everything we're saying, the movie Eyes Wide Shut is like based off of the Bohemian Grove. I'm obviously they took many, many artistic liberties, but that might give you a sense of this. It's, it has a kind of allegedly pagan vibe. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's a very interesting mashing up of cultures. It really is. And that also gives it the satanic quality of of ritual. But my my experience with Bohemian Grove was camping with these folks who were kind of like living in the campground. It was this really awesome little community. And a lot of them were former and current employees at Bohemian Grove. And as you said, we just started drinking and the stories started coming out and uh, just the most ridiculous little stories that were harmless but then they'd say things like yeah and then at that point they go underground and you're like what (laughs) they go they go underground (laughs) like where where do they go and they say like yeah there's like this giant stone owl and they do this ritual around it and we were just like oh my god right we were just like this group of people describe this this thing that we'd heard about that was such a mythical part of the cosmology of the illuminati so what else were you interested in? You know, because the, the the Illuminati is an umbrella, but there are so many little parts to it. Was there any part that you feel like you were particularly interested in? You know, I was I was really attached to like the broad symbolism. Like I wasn't, you know, like watching. I don't know, like music videos trying to find evidence of the Illuminati. I wasn't that kind of conspiracy theorist it was more like I had been taught at an impressionable age that there was a a cabal of global elites who were secretly running society and I just believed that like I just took that into the rest of my life for a while and that was how I sort of viewed the world I viewed the world through that prism it's so interesting And, and I think about all of this stuff so differently now, you know, at the time we didn't have like meme culture and we didn't have the alt-right. We didn't have this, um, or at least we didn't have vocabulary for this sort of like half joking, half not like irony steeped way of like looking at the world and engaging with complex ideas. And in retrospect, what I was doing then and I did this later in college with 9-11 stuff. It was sort of joking, but I deeply believed like some of it. And it was, I was picking and choosing what I believed in, but I was always kind of pretending that it was a joke, but it was not always a, a joke. And and I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm explaining it right, but it was just like, it doesn't feel all that different to me than, you know, people who kind of believe in flat earth theory as a joke, but then at a certain point, like if you're spending all of your time on flat earth message boards, like talking about how the earth is flat, is that any better than just being a a genuine flat earther? You know what I mean? Absolutely. I do believe that a lot of maybe not QAnon, but sort of the things that that began to bolster QAnon were, like you said, they started out as, as half interests and and ironic, you know, shit posting or trolling or whatever. And then if you spend enough time in those worlds and in those webs of information, I think 
I would love for you to, to talk more about this because one of my favorite parts of your article uh, was, and I'll, I'm just going to read this quote, the tragedy of conspiracism isn't that it is the absence of thinking, but the misapplication of it. I think it's important to point out that conspiracism can feel like critical thinking. That's the key, right? You feel like, oh, you're not taking the narrative you're being fed, which it's like none of us should be taking the narrative we're fed. It doesn't matter what side of the political spectrum you're on. But could you just would you want to talk a little bit on that um, idea of of conspiracy thinking feeling like critical thinking? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that this is like the biggest misconception about conspiracy thinking. And since I wrote this article, I've done, and before I've done like a lot of writing and editing about conspiracy theories. I've talked to a lot of current and former conspiracy theorists. And I think the biggest misconception is that people who believe in conspiracy theories are just dumb or just like, don't watch the right news channels. Like I hear that a lot even still. And it makes me a little crazy because that's so obviously not true. And I think people like you and me are, are sort of a great case study. Like we knew better. We weren't watching the wrong news channels. We were thinking we just were, we were putting all of that like kinetic energy in, in the wrong place. And I think that if we're to really solve the problem, the really huge problem that we are in, we need to do better than conspiracy theorists are dumb or conspiracy theorists like are mad that Trump lost or their brains are full of fake news because that can't just be it. There's too many of them. And this has gone on for way too long for that to be the case. And I talked to a lot of psychologists and neuroscientists and social psychologists for the story. And, and no, none of them think it's that simple either. And there's some kind of competing theories as to why people believe in conspiracy theories, but they all kind of ladder up to this idea that you're much more susceptible to conspiracy theories when you feel like you need a way to explain your lack of power. And, you know, the, the um, political scientist, Joseph Yushinsky has his sort of bone mo about this is like conspiracy theories are for losers, meaning that, Conspiracy theories appeal to you most when you need like a framework for explaining why the world has done something to you. And, and I think it's so telling that you and I both got into this when we were teenagers because teenagers like definitionally have no, like basically no power and are kind of old enough to understand all the ways in which they're powerless, but they're too young to like even go to a movie by themselves. And also sort of ordering the chaos, right? Because it's so much more attractive to simplify. And I think so much is about simplifying and and we all simplify. It's a natural human tendency, but it's also a way to feel kind of empowered because you get to feel like the hero suddenly. Even if you're completely disempowered, the one thing that you have is like sort of that underdog thing, right? That like, I know the truth. I am the real good guy. And feeling that sort of gives you a sense of power. And the solution obviously isn't like, give them power. <laughs> like I'm not right. suggesting that we like create a QAnon party and that will solve the problem. And I'm also not suggesting that we let them off the hook for, um, you know, for example, 
the many people who have died because of QAnon. And, you know, another another thing that I found really interesting is um, there's a, a researcher named Karen Douglas. Um, she's in the UK. I forget what the name of her university affiliation is. But she, one of the needs, the sort of psychological needs that conspiracism fills that she identified was also a social need, which I think is really interesting especially thinking about right now, like it feels really good not only to not be a sheep, but like to be part of a group of people who like get it and you can explain to other people that you get it. And you're sort of, it's kind of like being on a sports team, but you like don't have to do sports, (laughs) um, which is very appealing to me personally. Like, you know, you sort of feel like you have something to kind of root for and you have an end goal. So if you think about QAnon and you think about QAnon, especially during a time in history when people cannot hang out as much as they would like to, it would be appealing to to sort of immediately trapdoor into this community of people who are all trying to to accomplish the same goal together And, you know, it's also thinking about us, like being a teenager is just one very long period of being obsessed with like belonging (laughs) and being cool and being popular and being knowledgeable and being sophisticated. So, you know, sometimes I feel sort of silly talking about my experience as a teenage conspiracy theorist, because ultimately it was um, pretty short lived and pretty low stakes. But I think that it is like a helpful way of thinking about our current situation. I don't know if you came across this in your like Illuminati studies, but something I think is really interesting is is the late 90s, we have the rise of televangelism again, like this very intense um, restructuring of the Illuminati conspiracy, especially through Pat Robertson and sort of taking out the darker aspects, which is anti-Semitism most frequently, uh, along with many other things, but he sort of sanitized that into the elite, right? It it, It was no longer the global cabal of various types of Jewish leaders. You know, it was like more progressive. It was a more progressive Illuminati, and it was more consumable for a for a new progressive cult, more progressive culture in the 90s. Um, and that leads me to ask if you ever during your time got to the anti-Semitism, because it took me a while. Like it, it was it was pretty well hidden. And then one day someone said to me like, oh, yeah, you know that the Jews control the world. And here's a bunch of facts. And I was like, oh, is that what I'm doing? <laughs> you know, is this what I'm doing right now? Yeah, I got there eventually. And like you was obviously horrified and kind of embarrassed that I had not put it together. And, you know, I think that one thing, and I don't say this to, you know, let myself off the hook, but one thing that is important to remember about this time is that like, by and large, conspiracism didn't yet have like a body count. It felt a little bit like lighter and more chill. And I know that sounds crazy now because racist conspiracy theories have led to mass shootings and, insurrections at the cat you know like there's there's a lot there now but at the time it felt a little bit more innocent and I know that sounds crazy but when I got to the anti-semitism stuff two things that really affected me on my conspiracy theory journey were number one um moving to the east coast and meeting people who had lost family members on 9-11 mm. and who were really 
hurt by the 9-11 conspiracy theories. This is pretty shameful to say now, but like I lived in California. Like I didn't know anyone who died on 9-11. It felt kind of fake. And I don't mean fake literally. Like I believe that 9-11 happened. I believed it at the time, but it didn't, it felt very abstract to me. And then I moved to the East Coast and I met people whose lives were completely upended by 9-11 in a really different way than mine was. And then I started to piece together that a lot of the Illuminati conspiracy theory, especially what was online, was just incredibly racist and anti-Semitic and obviously wasn't down with that. And so I kind of started to like extract myself for many, many reasons, but both of those were, yeah, like really upsetting and kind of like, I felt very like embarrassed and shameful. I still feel that way. Yeah, me too. God, I know. And I think maybe that's all our work is just trying to reconcile our past. (laughs) But throughout the entire time we were having fun with it, it was still a far right conspiracy, but it's almost like bipartisan (laughs) conspiracy, but it was manifesting in real horrific violence with the Oklahoma bombing and with Waco. And then at the same time, it was a structure for us to sort of understand the Bush years and why we were going into these wars that didn't quite seem justified. So it was just this, I don't know, I don't think people fully understand how bipartisan and how different they were, whether, you know, you were interpreting it like, oh, they're trying to take my guns or, oh, they're trying to pass these patriotic laws by uh, and, and, and control us through these other means. Yeah, totally. I wish this were, this is another thing that I just wish more people understood is like, if you believe as I do, the general like conspiracy theories are for losers thing, QAnon makes a lot of sense because they, these people feel that the election was stolen from them. And us as sort of teens and people in very, very anti-Bush, which means at the time anti-government places, it all makes sense. It comes with a context. Right. And I think that that is really important to understand is that it conspiracism doesn't have a party. It just people are drawn to conspiracism based on their life circumstances and their life circumstances. All of our life circumstances change a lot based on whoever is in charge. Mm hmm. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American. American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box 
plus 20% off your next box. That's code AmericanHysteria50 at Factormeals.com slash AmericanHysteria50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. So something that I feel passionately about is that we need to start to honor our beliefs that things are systemic um, and that individuals are expressing systemic issues. And I think we get stuck on the idea that individuals are conspiracy theorists and that each individual is somehow malfunctioning or is is stupid or susceptible or blah, blah, blah. We already mentioned that. But I would like us to continue to focus on the establishment that has created all of this, which is a potent tool of fascism, um, is to create alternate realities and to um, indoctrinate, obviously, people into a totally separate world that we that that almost is unreachable. What <laughs> basically what I want to ask you is how do we or how do you think we deal with the people who are creating these stories, who are passing them on, whether it be the my pillow guy or the former president? I can't believe we're in a world where the my pillow guy is conducting a coup or attempting to. But how do we? shift that focus or do you think we should be shifting that focus to the people that are literally manufacturing an alternate reality to people who already feel whether they are or not they feel like they're disenfranchised yeah absolutely i do think while it's not as simple as these people are getting bad information that is an important part of it and you know one of the things in general, like Americans love to blame problems on individuals rather than systems. And especially we like to to sort of think that people's individual choices matter a lot more than they really do. And the truth is that there is a conspiracy economy that we need to try to dismantle. And that's really hard. But I'm talking about I'm talking about conspiracy media sources, obviously. I'm also talking about, you know, the fact that Alex Jones makes a great deal of money by selling these loco supplements that people think will protect them from whatever Alex Jones has told them is going to come after them next. You know, like, there's a lot of money to be made in conspiracy land, even down to like, you know, Etsy style stores that sell QAnon stuff. Etsy has... I should be clear, banned QAnon. Um, I don't know how successfully, but they have banned QAnon. But like, there's a lot of money to be made in this world. There are a lot of influencers that like make their living kind of peddling these sort of um, pastel QAnon, save the children style conspiracy theories. And that's really important. 
Like those people have a lot of power in that world. So do you think, I think we like to call it the conspiracy industrial complex. Um, I think of Americans too in the same way of like expressing systemic issues, almost like we are like these weird sleeper agents. I mean, especially white Americans in terms of being indoctrinated by white supremacy, by uh, sexism, hierarchy, anti-queer sentiments, all those different things. Um, We all have that within us. We all contain a legacy of American racism, etc. And so I almost think of us as these sort of sleeper agents that when the right buzzwords are said, we can change. Does that make sense? Right? Like, it's like you can almost be activated into your, your racism that's ingrained and you can be inflamed by becoming a victim again. It's this like idea I've been trying to to articulate. Maybe you can hear that in the way I'm talking about it. But just the way that we can almost be, and it sounds like a conspiracy itself, right? Like, oh, we can be like, say the right word and we're suddenly some communist agent. But um, does that make any sense to you in terms of how these things are able to blow up? Yeah, totally. You know, it's like, everything's manipulation, right? <laughs> yeah. And I don't mean that in a conspiratorial way, but the QAnon, like, save the children thing is so interesting because, like, of course, people are not incorrect to be worried about child trafficking or concerned about child trafficking. The truth is that child trafficking is a lot less common than they've been led to believe, but it's such an interesting thing to think about because you hook people by saying, you know, basically save the children. Aren't you worried about the children? And they're like, yeah, like, of course I am worried about the children. How could you not be? And then slowly it becomes this thing where at a certain point it falls off a cliff into being about not really the children at all, I would argue, and being about this this much bigger thing. But my point is that conspiracism is a lot more gradual and a lot more of a continuum than we might want to think. You know, it's not just like people wake up one morning thinking that that someone named Q is like embedded in, you know, the deep state, the whole thing. It's more like you are confused about how things are going in the country. You feel like maybe the person you voted for is being undermined at every turn. You're getting this evidence and you're sort of like cobbling it together in a certain way that maybe somebody else with different experiences or different values wouldn't cobble it together in, but it's coming from somewhere. And that is what's really, really hard about conspiracy theories. And that's why it's not just an information problem. What do you think is, this is the, this is the the moneymaker question here. Um, What do we do? Because something that we, you know, learned a lot about through our fake news episode, and I'm sure you've learned a lot about as well, is how presenting people with information that contradicts their point of view is actually not helpful and, in fact, can drive them farther into their own view. Studies have shown that, in fact, it does. It's almost worse than just agreeing. It makes somebody dig in even deeper. And so we don't have that, right? We don't have that like, oh, well, here, let me give you a bunch of resources because we can just say, oh, Snopes is in on the child trafficking conspiracy or whatever you want to say. So it's hard to battle that way. And 
then there's like the idea of being empathetic. Do you have any insight or what have you been thinking about in terms of just helping this problem? Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot for fairly obvious reasons. You know, I think that there are a few things we could do. I think that the major tech platforms could certainly do even more than they are currently doing to stop the spread of disinformation, misinformation, conspiracy mongering, you know, they, to their credit, a lot of the big tech tech platforms have done a lot in the last couple months. But it's really, really, really easy for a conspiracy theory to flourish on social media. And like, that's where people are getting this stuff. They may also be getting it from Fox News or OANN or whatever they watch. But they're largely getting it from their social network on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or Pinterest or TikTok or whatever. So that is certainly like a structural thing. You know, the government could make it a lot harder to make money off of like weird supplements and that kind of thing. <laughs> but I think so a lot of the the research on kind of how to pull people out of conspiracy theories is relatively new. It's like been for very obvious reasons, people have gotten very interested in it in the last couple of years. And so it's not a, a hugely like robust area of research, but the emerging consensus is that the best way to snap people out of conspiracy theories is to do it on an individual level. It's a little bit like cults. It's a lot like cults, actually. Mm-hmm. The best way to get someone out of a cult is to approach them one-on-one and have a lot of conversations and really, really try to understand where they're getting this stuff and not tell them they're wrong and not kind of fact check them. Because as you said, like that absolutely doesn't work. The thing that's so vexing about conspiracy theories is that it's self-sealing logic. If somebody tells you a conspiracy theory is wrong, suddenly you are an agent of the conspiracy theory. That goes for individuals. That also goes for media, like fact-checking conspiracy theories just doesn't work. It might make people who don't believe in them feel better, but it doesn't work on the individuals. If you believe in QAnon, you're not going to read a story that's like why QAnon is, is wrong. But what does work is just talking to people, figuring out where they're getting their information, figuring out why they're believing their information, talking to them probably over a period of many weeks or months, slowly, slowly pulling them out of it. It's hard. I've certainly never done it. It seems like it would probably be quite frustrating <laughs> and require a lot of patience, but that is that is what we know works. You know, it's a little bit like, um, you know, all of these studies that, that people did in the last century about how, like, if you knew a gay person, you were much less likely to be against gay marriage or to be, you know, homophobic in some other way. Um, They did similar studies with with race and interracial marriage and things like that back in the day. And, And like, it's true that the most effective, the most powerful, the most persuasive force in anyone's life is their loved ones. So unfortunately, that's like a very long and difficult process, but that is the thing that works. And, you know, this is not a solution to this problem because a lot of these people are in sort of like very closed social networks. But 
I do really think that the number one thing that like Olive, for example, your listeners could do, and I'm sure you've told them to do this already, is like when your like wacky cousin like posts about QAnon on Facebook, definitely don't be like, Jimmy, you're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> like here, let me let me link you to like a New York Times article that says you're wrong. Call Jimmy up and talk to him about it. Be curious, be kind. That's good advice for life in general, but it's really good advice for conspiracy stuff. But I don't know, like, what do you think? I mean, I think, I think what you, you nailed it. And, but isn't it daunting? It's like, (laughs) it's so daunting. And I do, I think, you know, I think your article does this. I'm sure you do it in your work. And I know we try to do it is, is to approach things. It's not, Like, you don't have to be empathetic, but you have to be almost logical and say, "Okay, I can't write this off. Like, I can't write this off as crazy. I can't write this off as as completely silly and ridiculous and like not even worth my time or, you know, just worth bashing and making fun of. Um, All those things are fun. Sure. Um, But you're absolutely right in that. I think I think I think of the Socratic method as, as and I've read that before in terms of like showing somebody enough respect and you don't even have to respect somebody to show them respect, even if yeah, it's just, it. just just asking them questions and saying, OK, wow, yeah, like I totally feel that way, too. Like I totally feel disempowered by, you know, the American government because we all feel disempowered by the American government. Like there are we actually have a lot of things at the bottom um, that are obviously tinged by America's horrific past and the opinions and things we inherit. Um, but at the heart, it is this disenfranchisement and we can connect there. You can get through to somebody by asking questions and by allowing them a space to speak from their experience and their authority, and then you can do the same. And the hard part is just staying calm enough to do it. <laughs> right. And that's a really hard part because, like, I think what's so frustrating for people who don't believe in conspiracy theories is that many conspiracy theories are just so blatantly illogical. Like, they simply do not make any goddamn sense. And so you can sort of get get kind of caught up on, on that and like short circuit a little bit like Comet Ping Pong doesn't even have a basement and you're like flipping out and and it's really really it takes a great amount of like self-control to just like skip that part of the conversation and and go into kind of like what the deeper what the deeper meaning is and I suspect that in that case in those cases it's more about the symbolism and kind of the metaphor of the global elites trying to undermine Donald Trump than it is about the specifics. And once you can get past the specifics, the conversation is a lot easier, but I am not suggesting that it's easy. No, or that any of you need to go out there and do that. You know, I think there are certain, you know, there are many ways to affect change. And if you have the patience and energy and drive to help a friend or family member out of conspiracy, like conspiratorial thinking, then God bless you and Godspeed. And I would like to continue to do that. I I love that I can do it from far away. on a podcast. Um, And I'm lucky enough to not have a bunch of relatives uh, who believe in QAnon. But even if, if, you know, people think it's a lost cause, it might not be. And I don't think it is. I don't think it is. I don't think anyone's completely lost to it unless maybe they're like, 
making a ton of money off of it and they'll never stop because of that. So I talked to a Danish, I believe, social scientist about basically this exact thing. And and he mentioned a study that he had read in, in Northern Europe, which, you know, is like a different vibe in many ways. But one thing that has sort of been shown to correlate with lower belief in conspiracy thinking, apparently, is greater transparency in government. And I think that's really interesting. I think that so much of the government, of what the government does is so opaque and it is confusing and you don't know where your taxes are going exactly. And it's it's hard for even really, really smart people to understand. And And I do wonder if that's something that, you know, a new administration could try to tackle or even on the local level, state level, I think that that might help just a little bit more clarity and transparency around what the government is doing at any given moment, I think is another possible systemic change because paranoia breeds in darkness, you know, like, like the thing that makes people feel paranoid is when they don't know what's going on. And one way you can help people feel less paranoid is to tell them what is going on. So I, I think about that as, as another like sort of high level systemic change that we could attempt to make. We can combat these things, as you mentioned, by by cutting as much of it out of social media as we can. But that also feeds sort of that complex of of secrecy and, um, you know, hidden agendas and all of that different kind of stuff. But in terms of it changing in a way that is meaningful, I don't know how else to do it except one on one. And that's that is daunting. <laughs> so <laughs> goodbye, everyone. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> and I, I so appreciate you coming on. And I'm so excited to. Is there anything you'd like to talk about that you've been working on that you'd like to share with our audience? Because I'm sure they would be so interested. Um, nothing in particular. Please subscribe to The Atlantic. Um, yeah, that's all I got. That's great. And if you haven't read Ellen's piece, uh, I Was a Teenage Conspiracy Theorist, I will definitely post that in our show notes. Uh, So please read that. And thank you so much, Ellen. Thank you. This was American Hysteria. As I said, make sure you check out Ellen Cushing's article, I Was a Teenage Conspiracy Theorist from The Atlantic. You can find that in our show notes. Next time on the show, we will be talking about the history of public education in our episode called Children's Programming. If you're looking for more of American Hysteria, please consider becoming a patron and you will get access to our patrons-only podcast, Walk With Me, where I go on walks along with you and talk about all kinds of things outside of American history. We're talking about the metaphysical. You can even share your own stories as well. It's a collaborative effort, and I hope that you'll consider entering a very different mindset with me. You can find the link to our Patreon in the show notes. You can also leave us a review on the podcast app of your choice. That really helps our show out, too, and helps combat all of the people who believe me to be in the deep state. And come and join us on social media. Most recently, we did a deep dive into the 1970 yearbook that I found on the ground. We mapped the social dynamics, and we're even looking them up on Facebook. There's more to come. 
You don't even have to be a patron for that. Just head to our social media. You can find those links in our show notes as well. This episode has sound by Clear Camo Studios and was produced by Miranda Zickler. Thanks, as always, for listening. And never dismiss conspiracy theorists as absolutely bonkers, because you know as well as I do that you've believed some super stupid shit, just like me. Have a great week. Friends, hello. I'm Mike Rignetta, the host of Never Post, a new and independent news podcast about and for the internet. In addition to bringing you the latest in current events, we try to figure out why the internet and the world because of the internet is the way it is. How did influencers destroy tween fashion? What is posting disease and how do you ensure you don't catch it? From what device must one send important emails? We talk about what's going on online and ask together why. Why are we like this? Find Never Post wherever you get your podcasts.